We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash lawless. Just go to Indeed.com slash lawless right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed com slash lawless terms and conditions apply need to hire you need indeed hello sunshine i'm alexi lawless and welcome to the state of the union podcast where we look at the beautiful game on and off the field through the lens of red white and blue colored glasses this week we'll be talking about oh yes the semifinals are upon us of the mls is back tournament going on down in orlando we roll on with that We'll be talking VAR. It's evergreen, but uh, it's always bringing us interesting content and things to talk about. We'll be talking about the loons up there in Minnesota. Uh, We'll be talking about the Champions League, speaking of a return. We'll be talking about water breaks. We'll be talking about uh, a club near and dear to my heart, Detroit City FC up there uh, in my old stomping grounds of Detroit, and so much more. But first, joining me, as always, my friend, my colleague, my guiding light. David Mossy, a soccer savant and a Fox soccer researcher and writer extraordinaire. Mossy, how are you on this uh, Monday, August 3rd of the year 2020? I am doing very well. Uh, coming off uh, last night, uh, covering a League MX match, uh, Santos Laguna against Chivas Guadalajara. Uh, we are back in the League MX mix here on FS1. I uh, have another one coming up uh, Thursday night, which will be uh, Tijuana against Tigres. Uh, I believe it's uh, Keith Costigan and Moe Du calling that one, which, uh, you know, those of you that listen to this podcast know Keith Costigan is a friend of mine. I reference him a lot, but this will actually be our first time working together in several months. So I'm looking forward to that. Ah, it's like riding a bike. Mossy, for those that are out there that maybe are not following, because, you know, the other day I, I, uh, I, I threw out the, uh, it's not a hot take, but the take that, uh, and, I've, and I've said this to you before, that I think the American soccer fan is the most educated out of necessity of all fans out there because of the way that we have had to compare and contrast, because of all the different influences that we have. We are adept at talking in the same breadth of uh, Liga MX to uh, Scottish football, to the EPL, to Champions League, to MLS, to uh, NWSL, I think more so than anyone uh, out there. But I recognize there, that there are those out there that maybe uh, have not been able to follow the return of League MX. So give us a little uh, Cliff Notes version of how you think it, it has come back, especially relative to other leagues uh, and other sports that have come back. Yeah, so the deal with League MX is, you know, they have two different, uh, they have a clausura and an apertura campaign. Uh, the clausura was suspended uh, in mid-March, 10 rounds in. And then they eventually decided to cancel it altogether without crowning a champion. That decision was taken in late May. And all the focus turned to starting the Apertura on time, which they were able to do. Uh, Friday, July 24th, uh, it kicked off. So we're in the second round of the Apertura, which has actually been officially renamed the Torneo Guardianes in honor of healthcare workers in Mexico. Uh, Empty stadiums. and we're pumping in the crowd noise. So, uh, but this I is not a it. bubble scenario. They're, everybody's playing in their own stadiums. And so, 
we'll see how it goes. I mean, Mexico is still dealing with this pandemic like everybody else. So there's some concern about how this is going to go. There have been uh, players testing positive who have had to miss matches. Some matches have been rescheduled. So it has not been completely smooth so far, but most of the games have gone ahead and the, the quality has been pretty good. So uh, fingers crossed that it goes well. What are you watching on television, Masi? Anything uh, interesting this week? I, 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 I have been going back to the well uh, and re-watching some of my favorites, especially when it comes to documentary, you know, for example, Making a Murder and um, The Keepers and these types, of, these types of things. And I don't like to necessarily re-watch stuff, but it has, I think it's entertained me more than I thought it was. Obviously, you know the story and you know what's, you know what's coming. And so... The, the drama of it is is lessened. But I have I have found that I've enjoyed it more than I thought I was going to enjoy it. Were you a fan of The Keepers? Because when that uh, was first coming out, it was it was sold as like, this is going to be the best of all these true crime documentaries. And it was a very compelling story, but I don't feel like it captured the imagination as much as Making a Murder. It was not quite the cultural phenomenon. That it was it. definitely not the cultural phenomenon. Um, I, I think it meanders. I mean, look, these are all multiple parts. So meandering is kind of part of the storytelling. You're getting really deep dives into these uh uh, into these stories, but I think it I think it meanders all over the place and at times loses its its uh, its focus. But I still I still love it, um, and I I still think that it that it holds up and it does have enough drama to keep me uh, keep me captivated. Anything else you watch uh, over the last week? Uh, last night I watched uh, the penultimate episode of the first season of Perry Mason, which mm, yeah. uh, was very good. Uh, I did not watch the finale of the uh, Golden State Killer documentary. I have that recorded. I'm probably going to watch that tonight. Also tonight, I have the latest episode of I May Destroy You. So I'm sort of regretting putting that Deadwood thing out there because uh, I get asked about that a lot on Twitter now. And yeah, I have not started that yet. Uh, I will eventually, I promise. But that was always going to be like a post MLS is back thing, but I mentioned it a couple weeks ago, so people expected me to have already started that, but I haven't yet. But that is still in the hopper that I'm looking forward to that. Deadwood. Uh, we'll, we'll end it here. Um, Masi, have you ever heard of the group, the Go Go's? Uh, vaguely oh familiar with Jesus. All right. Uh, <laughs> the Go Go's were an uh, incredibly popular band uh, in the 1980s. And what made them special and memorable was not just because they were an incredible group and wrote great pop songs, but also uh, they were the first all group to not only write their material, but play their instruments and achieve number one um, on the Billboard uh, charts with their, uh, with their album. Uh, they came and went. They had a very brief, brief time. But there's a documentary on Showtime. The only reason I say it is, you know, I love documentaries. And the only thing I love more than documentaries is music documentaries. So there's a documentary on the Go-Go's on Showtime, which I watched uh, last night. It's, it's okay. It's not, it's not great. But it, it brings up the old question that we, we, you know, we talk about all the time in sports, and it, it applies to music, too. The Go-Go's are not in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And this was a, a group that, while had a very finite and small period of activity, they were incredibly influential and obviously seminal in terms of what they did and uh, the, the group that they were, as I said, the songs and the fact that they were, uh, that they were all women. Uh, it spends a lot of time talking about that and whether they deserve to be in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And, you know, we talk about Hall of Fames and, and Players of the Year and all that kind of stuff. And when someone has a very small sliver time spent, a la, I don't know, Christian Pulisic, but does incredible things in that time, where do we then rate them relative to others that have had a much more extended period of success um, when it comes to judging talent, if you can even 
judge this talent. But I, I do recommend it. It's, it's fun. It's a great peek into not just the group, but the 80s and where they came from and the fact that they came out of the whole punk scene in, uh, in, uh, in Los Angeles. All right, Mossy, you ready to light this candle? Yep. All right. Well, we jump right into it each and every week. Uh, and certainly each and every week during the lockdown, we have uh, said we're not doing the, the, the traditional State of the Union. We jump right into it. And we're going to jump right into the MLS is back tournament down in Orlando. We have our, uh, our final four. Uh, the semifinals are upon us. The brackets shake out, shake out like this. Uh, on one side, you have Philadelphia versus Portland. Uh, and on the other side, you have Orlando versus Minnesota. Now, if I had uh, gone around and asked people to bet and wager, uh, which is being done more often uh, nowadays than before when it comes to Major League Soccer, I doubt that there are a lot of people that would have picked these four teams for the Final Four. That's not necessarily a bad thing. I actually think that that is a good thing. We are seeing you know, maybe, maybe it's just an anomaly. Uh, we don't know yet. We don't know if people are going to be able to extend this outside of the bubble. But while we are in the bubble, it is fun to see teams in this rarefied air right now. And the potential is there for somebody that has never won a trophy uh, and a title to, you know, to speak of, let's be honest, uh, when it comes to Minnesota, Orlando, and Philadelphia. And when it comes to someone like Orlando, which has an incredibly long history of futility uh, and, let's be honest, poor play to find themselves in this moment is great. Uh, Minnesota, we know as an expansion team, uh, started off their existence with an incredible soft launch of a, uh, of a start and did nothing to enhance at least the on-field product for a number of years. And now they find themselves here. Philadelphia has been around in uh, U.S. Open Cup finals and certainly, but they are, they are certainly, and, and they, they pride themselves on being a very smaller market in terms of what they are spending and in terms of Philadelphia and the type of team that they are. Portland, we know, has had a, uh, a history success. So they would be the, uh, they would be in a, in a time and certainly in a semifinal where everybody wants to be an underdog. And it seems that nobody wants to be the alpha dog. If I had to name who the alpha dog is here, it's probably Portland based on their history uh, and, uh, um, you know, the, uh, the, the success that they have had when it comes to Major League Soccer. But all bets are off when it comes uh, to the, uh, the bubble. Mossy, is this, is this relative specifically to the bubble, or could this, could this have been predicted uh, when it comes to this Final Four? Well, as you love to talk about, MLS is unpredictable anyway, and I think this uh, bubble situation has only exacerbated that. Uh, but you mentioned alpha dogs. I think going into the quarterfinals, clearly the alpha dog was LAFC, and they were eliminated on penalties by Orlando. I'd like to harken back to that match for a minute because I thought this was fascinating. Um, this was very much an upset, but it, it should be noted, Orlando City was the better team in this game. Uh, they are really playing some lovely stuff under Oscar Pareja. Uh, you've got uh, Pereira, that Uruguayan playmaker they signed, Rosel and Mendez, uh, playing some lovely stuff in the midfield. Nani doing Nani things up there. Uh, Chris Mueller was having a very good tournament. Unfortunately, had to come off injured in this game. So I've been immensely impressed with Orlando City. And as Grant Wall tweeted recently, I thought it was a great line. They have a Russia 2018 kind of feel about them, which in a tournament with no fans, which is ostensibly being played in a, in a training pitch, you wouldn't think home field right. advantage would matter, but they almost are drawing some strength from being the quote unquote host of this tournament. And so uh, what did you make of that match, Orlando City knocking out LAFC? It was it was wonderful. Uh, it had everything. Uh, I don't necessarily see it as 
I don't I don't see that Orlando was as dominating as you just made it out to be, but that's neither here nor there. We can we can disagree on that. I will say that, you know, look, anytime you, you mentioned they are the alpha dog and they were the pick and they come with that target on their back and the pressure that comes with it. And they couldn't find a way to get through, especially against an Orlando, which without a doubt is improved. There, there are there are teams like Orlando that no matter what, they are going to leave this bubble with an enhanced view, an enhanced perspective, and an improved one in terms of what, of what they are. Still, as I said, I, I think, for example, an Orlando is more apt to continue this success outside the bubble than someone like San Jose, in my, in my opinion. But it remains to be seen. Because right now we're still in the bubble, and that's that, all that matters. That they won and that they beat LAFC matters and will – you know, continue to, sh- to put them in a very favorable uh, light. To see uh, LAFC go down like any favorite, there are as many people that hate them as love them, okay? And that means that when they went down, there were lots of people that were just absolutely elated by the fact that Bob Bradley and company were knocked out of this tournament. And it only, <laughs> it, it only made it that much better or worse, depending on what side you are, to see Bob Bradley uh, at the end of this uh, game just so angry. And, you know, there was a lot of talk about the way that he was acting and running around and spitting and cussing and just obviously irate at, you know, not just probably the result, but I'm sure there's a million other things, a laundry list that Bob Bradley has about why they lost and why this tournament uh, needed to be different and improved. Uh, but it doesn't matter. They, they lost. And when you are the king, which is what LAFC for the most part, uh, are considered, and they go down, people are, <laughs> people are going to enjoy that. And to see Bob Bradley, I mean, he was, he was hot, man. He was all, all kinds of angry uh, on the field. And, uh, you know, whether it's <laughs> Josie Altador tweeting about it or just it, it, it kind of made you laugh uh, because you get it. You understand that's what makes Bob Bradley great. And he is a great coach. Any way you slice it, you can agree or disagree with things he does, but he is a great coach. He has a track record, but considering they couldn't get through in the, uh, in the normal playoffs last year, and then they fall in the, uh, in the bubble here in the big game, albeit without Carlos Vela, but they were, they were cruising. They couldn't figure it out. Uh, I'm bet you there's a lot of video going on uh, when it comes to, to this game that will be assessed and mulled over by Bob Bradley and his, uh, and his coaching staff, but credit to Orlando. And, and as you said, they, they have improved. They, they didn't park a bus. Um, they didn't play a dour or uh, unromantic type of play. And you, you mentioned, you know, someone like Chris Mueller, who has used this tournament to his advantage. I think Nani has too. It's not that Nani wasn't good, but I think a lot of people seeing Orlando play, and that's what this tournament has done, has given us a, an opportunity to see teams on a consistent basis, especially from a, a national perspective. We don't get to see every single team all the time. Obviously, I watch them, but we're not covering them in depth. So to see Orlando and see what Nani can do on a consistent basis. Remember, he missed a penalty, but then came back and, and, uh, uh, and made a penalty. Uh, it's, it's fun to see, and it's fun to see this Orlando kind of blossoming and how long this is, this is going to go on. You know, we talk about the Cinderella effect and midnight and all that kind of stuff. As I said, I do think that Orlando is going to come out of this and still be able to, to reset and use some of the things to their advantage in whatever that normal, normal season looks like. Mossy. Well, it is remarkable 
that this is already the vibe around LAFC, a franchise that's only been around since 2018, but they are the big bad villain in MLS that everybody loves to see go down. And you mentioned they've lost two of three playoff games. They get knocked out in this tournament in the quarterfinals. So people are already pushing this narrative that they can't win the big one. They have to win a trophy to validate all this. I mean, they did set a points record for an expansion uh, franchise their first season. Then they set a points and goal difference record their second season. And I almost feel like we should still be focusing on that and the positive side of how quickly they've built themselves into this juggernaut. But do you think it's fair for there to already be this narrative hanging over them that, well, when it really counts, they come up short and they haven't won anything yet. Where's the fun in that, Mossy? Where's the fun in... <laughs> I mean, no. It's, it's com- No, yes, it is completely fair. It is completely fair to look at LAFC differently than other teams. In the same way that a few weeks ago when Atlanta United fired Frank DeBoer, that that was what a big team would do. And look, it, it's not that we have to emulate and repeat uh, and mirror everything that happens around the world. But, and this is just not around the world, but big clubs in big leagues, they behave differently and the expectations are higher. And when you're LAFC and you just decimate everyone, not just decimate everybody, but in a style that is entertaining and some would even argue the likes of which we have never seen before. Yeah. You, you, you're going to have an expectation that you're going to have that moment. And with all due respect to the supporters shield, okay, as important as it is, and you know, people will die on that hill at times. It doesn't have that moment that the money shot of the trophy and the confetti. I know they can, they do confetti and I think, but that MLS cup is still looming even after you win the supporters shield, it, it doesn't make it the same. And so not being able to be there at the end of everything, when there are no more games, okay? And I know there's more games outside the bubble, but relative to this bubble, when there are no more games, they, they need that. Um, and certainly they want that. And I think eventually they, they will get that, but it's absolutely fair for us to look and say, well, you haven't been able to win the big game. And is there a small sample size? Yes, but you came on great guns and thank God goodness that you did you have made MLS better you've made soccer better you've certainly made soccer better here in Los Angeles but with that comes responsibility and with that comes higher expectations and I think it's absolutely fair for all of us to hold them to that expectations of this is what you have promised this is what you have delivered and we expect that to continue and when you go out in, in the MLS's back tournament down in Orlando against Orlando yeah, it's going to raise some eyebrows, especially coming on the fact that the last couple of years you've bombed out, you've bombed out in the playoffs. You've got to be able to win that big game. And in a league that has playoffs, in a league that has a tournament like this, yeah, it's, it's important. You can rest on the supporter shield all you want, but ultimately it's about those big games and, and stepping up uh, from a, uh, a super club perspective, which is without a doubt what uh, LAFC is. And it's interesting, credit to Rob Stone, he made this point. LAFC won just two of five games in this tournament. Now, they were very loud wins, 6-2 over the Galaxy, 4-1 over Seattle, but that sort of make, made us act like they were more dominant than they were in this tournament. They actually drew three of their five games, so and they conceded a whole lot of goals. So there are some question marks there for, for Bob Bradley to sort out. Um, anything more on this? Correct me if I'm wrong. They, they had no shutouts, right, throughout the tournament? Correct. They laid in goals every single game, and you know that's not something that I think Bob Bradley wants. I think he 
he took it because I think he recognized that if there is a weakness and if there is an Achilles heel, it is, it is that defense. And so they're just going to run and gun and try to outscore you. And when that doesn't happen and you're, you're reliant on penalties, which, you know, it's, it is a skill and it is a valuable skill as long as this is the type of penalties that we are doing. But once again, I'll make my case for the 35 yard, uh, penalties uh because i just think it's a fairer and better and more accurate representation of the game but you know you got to be able to make the saves if uh, if you're the goalkeeper and if you're uh if you are this super club then you should be populated with people that have ice in their veins and are able to step up and finish their uh, their penalties now uh, as we know these uh tournaments can often function as shop windows mm -hmm. uh, how many times have we seen uh, a player shine in a world cup and then parlay that into a big transfer and it seems like this is happening here too. Now it's different because scouts aren't actually allowed in the bubble to watch these games in person, but they are watching them on television. And that uh, Philadelphia Sporting KC uh, match very much took on this shop window dynamic because uh, you're hearing that uh, Mark McKenzie uh, has been linked with Celtic, Brendan Aronson linked with a host of Bundesliga clubs, including Gladbach. And Gianluca Buzio has been linked to the likes of Juventus, Milan, and Fiorentina. And it was interesting. Uh, Jim Curtin welcomed all this. He said, our model is absolutely to sell players. And we, we like the fact that uh, Europe is interested in a couple of our guys. Uh, and Peter Vermes more or less echoed those same thoughts about Buzio. So uh, what did you make of that, of, of that match in particular, sort of taking on the shop window dynamic and, and you know, those, those three players? And, and you know, Philadelphia, they, they've really leaned heavily on homegrown talent. Mm -hmm. And there has been this notion that they're still lacking that proof of concept, either either a major trophy or a big sale. And they might be able to get both here done in, in the next uh, week or two. So, I mean, what, what do you make of all that? Yeah, I think I think that someone like the Philadelphia Union can rest their hat on a a business model that that sells players on uh, more easily than an LAFC in terms of whether they win trophies or, or whether they win trophies or not. I love look, I love Jim Curtin. Jim Curtin. I think that he is a breath of fresh air in what is oftentimes a very stale <laughs> environment when it comes to coaches in the way that they think and the way that they talk, and that he is willing to be very very blunt and clear. Uh, and honest about what the aspirations are and what the philosophy is of his club is is great and 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 I think it also is something that the league as an as MLS has to do and I get that there's this balance because if you just appear as a feeder league then you are ever kind of pigeonholed as a feeder league and you know if if MLS according to Don Garber wants to be that league of choice you have to you have to appear as a destination you have to appear as a league where it's not a stepping stone. This is this is the final resting place. This is the the, the pinnacle. Now, obviously, they're they're not there yet. I think you can find a proper balance, and different teams will have different balances when it comes to something like that. But you know, this is this is fun that these players are being looked at, that we are talking about it. You know, when when Brendan Aronson from uh, Philadelphia turns on that ball uh, in that game, and then you know, dimes out uh, uh, through three or four players to result in a goal. I mean, that's, that's great stuff. Those are moments because it takes on added meaning because of the specific person that did it. If that had been just another, another player that wasn't so highly touted and young and, and recognized as potentially moving on, we would have said, oh, that's a great turn and that's a nice, and that's a really nice ball. But that Brendan Aronson did it, 
that just you know ticks up his value. And that's that's good for the credibility of the of not just the Philadelphia Union, but of the league, obviously for American players at a time when you know, I, I think we I think we need that kind of stuff. And an interesting guy, you mentioned the different models for LAFC and Philadelphia. An mm-hmm. interesting guy in all this is Diego Rossi because he's had two great shop windows here in 2020. He played very well at the South American under 23 championships earlier this year, gave Brazil fits in a game that I watched, and obviously extremely well in this tournament, seven goals, three assists. Um, but I don't know that Bob Bradley would be as welcoming of European interest and as happy to part with him as, say, Jim Curtin seems to be with Mackenzie or Aronson, because as we just talked about, there is some pressure on Bob Bradley to, to win MLS Cup with LAFC. So that's an organization that really has to juggle sort of their desire for trophies with, you know, not standing in the way of, of players, you know, fulfilling their dreams, I guess, and moving on to Europe for, for big money. Yeah, I mean, I think Bob was well aware of why they bought the likes of Rossi, and this is part of the the flipping of the players. But <laughs> it's all fine and well to sell a player, but if you don't replace them with equal value, and you can just look at at, at Atlanta, it can be very very difficult, and it can throw a, a real problem into the uh, the nice well oiled machine that you have going on right now. I think the biggest question with Rossi is in you know the year twenty twenty. What is his value? What what is that number that they are going to put on it? Because I got I got a feeling that LAFC is going to play real hardball as they should, um, because of the talent that he is, and because you know while that is part of the plan, it's not as if they if they don't sell Rossi, the the the, the team's going to fall apart from a uh, business perspective. So they can afford to be very very picky, and I think that they can afford to leverage his his incredible talent by charging an ast- an astronomical fee. I just don't know what that astronomical fee is in the present world and market that we live in. Because he's, he's not a superstar. He's a recognized uh, talent that people are going to pay money for. It's just how much are they going to, uh, are they going to, pay, uh, are they going to pay right now? All right, so we've talked about, uh, we've talked about Philadelphia uh, and Jim Curtin and the, the youth movement, but also, I mean, they got Alejandro Bedoya and you know, wonderful, just a wonderful balance on that team. And they are a fun team to watch. And I think they're obviously feeling uh, confident. We've talked about... Uh, Orlando and uh, the the new Orlando, if this is the new Orlando. Uh, Portland uh, with Giovanni Savaresi, uh, I didn't honestly think that they would make it this far. Uh, I thought that they, you know, some of their weaknesses would would come up and uh, bite them. And especially I was, I was really disappointed in the way that a- a- NYCFC played. But you got to give Giovanni Savaresi and uh, Portland credit for for the way that they played. And I would think right now, as I said before, that they are, given their history, they have to be considered the favorite. And I know people are, you know, their, their, their tops are blowing right now. What we, what we haven't talked about yet are the loons, Mossy. Shall we, shall we talk a little bit about Minnesota United? It's funny. I do want to Skip back to Portland, NYC. Okay, go you do but, Portland, but no, no, and then we can... we'll and then we'll talk about the loons. Okay, go. <laughs> it's funny. Right now, we are perpetuating the loons like right. They're exactly. already complex chip on. I don't, the, we the might loons. we might not even talk about them. I know I I advertised that we were going to talk about them, but <laughs> maybe we'll just ignore them. All right, go ahead. Uh, the fascinating thing quickly about Portland NYCFC was that you started this game with Diego Valeri and Maxi Morales on the bench, and it, it was one one. You get into the second half, you kind of sense that this game is going to be decided by whichever one of those players can make a bigger impact off the bench. And it ended up being Valeri. He comes on, he scores the go ahead goal. And a lot of talk afterwards that this might be 
uh, his his role moving forward. He's, he's getting up there in age. They have Blanco now to handle kind of all the playmaking duties, but to have a weapon like Valeri to be able to bring off the bench. Uh, we've seen Wondolowski carve out a nice uh, super sub role with San Jose. Valeri, obviously a different kind of player, but uh, do you see that as the direction that Portland might be moving in with him? The, the problem is always getting the player to buy in because these are players. The reason why they are greats is because they have a fire and they have an ego, good a good ego, a healthy ego. They have a beautiful arrogance uh, and obviously their talent. And so Chris Wondolowski doesn't want to be a sub. <laughs> Diego Villarreal doesn't want to be a sub. But if, if and I'm still not convinced that that's the role for Diego Valeri. Wondolowski may be a little, uh, little different because of the way that San Jose plays. But uh, when it comes to Diego Valeri, if that's the way that, that Gio Savarese wants to go, I mean, that's a that's a hell of a conversation to have. Um, and the buy-in is everything. And look, you might not even get the buy-in, but he's just so good that he gets on the field and he changes the complex, the complexion of the team. And you just say, look, you might not agree with me, but this is what we're, this is what we're doing. I think he will have a, uh, a part to play as a starter more than, more than is evident, uh, right now, not because he's going to force his way in. I just think I, I, I the, the substitute Diego Valeri might, not be ultimately as effective as uh, as we as we have seen or that we think it is. So I don't know. I don't know. All right, should we do it? <laughs> I guess we have to. I mean, no. it's. Uh, I guess we have to. All right. So for those for those that don't know, uh, Minnesota United uh, has the loons up there. They have cultivated this underdog mentality, um, and I, I will be fair and say that that type of mentality is justified relative to the first couple of years that they were in existence. And I, for one, was, I enjoyed immensely <laughs> the opportunity to uh, call them out for this soft launch that was Minnesota. Uh, and whether it was the abysmal team that they had on the field, whether it was, you know, waiting for that stadium to come online. And, and that was where that soft launch type of, of approach. But certainly if you look at, Minnesota relative to their history, you can say that they were uh, underdogs. And the reason why they were underdogs is because they sucked, okay? But if you look at 2020 and you look at certainly the way that they started the normal season, I know very small sample size, but, but certainly they have continued that in the bubble. There's nobody that's taking Minnesota lightly, okay? There, this, this whole... Uh, narrative that, and it's a little tongue in cheek from Adrian Heath at this point right now in the way that he does interviews about it, but this whole plucky upstart Rodney Dangerfield, little engine that could Cinderella, Rocky put upon disrespected Rudy uh, punch above your weight, bad news bears type of a club that Minnesota United has, has tried to make themselves out at it. I think it's getting old. Uh, I think that, it certainly doesn't resonate anymore with anybody outside. I doubt it resonates with anybody inside. And, and if that's what you're going to hang your hat on, then I feel like you're forever destined to be that. It's a, it's a self-fulfilling type of pro, uh, prophecy in that you're acting small in a moment when you don't need to be. And I'm not saying you act like LAFC, but I know you haven't been there but there should be an element of you acting like, act like you have been there, okay? <laughs> okay? Because 
but it's working for them. And if that's what they need, and whether it's bulletin board material or uh, or whatever it is, I just think it it can probably be incredibly taxing to constantly come up with this stuff and to mine stuff that is going to motivate your team. And if the only way that Minnesota is motivated is by either in reality or, or, or being made up as the underdog, is that the only way to o- motivate this team? Then that's finite. And that, that, is, not sus- that is not sustainable. But it's fun. Uh, I love Adrian Heath because he always gives good quote. He's always an interesting interview. Uh, and even the way that he has gone about doing this and played it up, uh, it, it's, it's great. I think it's great, for, it's great for the game. It's great for the league. But at some point, Minnesota has to graduate and in doing so, accept the fact that nobody takes them for granted, all right? Everyone takes them seriously. They are no longer in a soft launch phase. And at this point, you could say that they are favored against Orlando. Uh, And at this point, nobody would begrudge you saying that Minnesota is the favorite in this final four and therefore the favorite to win uh, the MLS's back tournament. Oh, no, I don't know. I know they don't want to hear that. They'll, they'll cut all of that uh, out. But it is it is fun to watch how this whole psychological mind game thing is going on and how it is kind of turned now where everybody's saying, ah, not so not so fast, Minnesota. Uh, what do you think about this? Mossy? It's nothing new. It happens in sports. It's happened for years for, for plenty of teams. Well, listen, they've done a very good job in this tournament, especially considering the injuries, uh, Opara, Molino, and they just keep, you know, moving pieces around and, and, and continuing to win. And now Adrian Heath comes up against uh, his former team, Orlando. So you have that storyline as well. Uh, so it's going to be fun. Now, one thing we know about this Orlando-Minnesota game is if there's a big VAR review, we're now going to be able to listen in on the discussion uh, that's the other big talking point here uh, recently in this MLS's back tournament. What do you make of this new wrinkle where we can now listen in on the VAR discussions between the referee and the VAR official? So I think I mentioned it last week that the way that this came about was this was always the plan from the production uh, perspective of uh, MLS's back. Um, it just was a matter of when it was actually going to come online, both ESPN and 2DN and us at Fox, we were all made aware that this was a possibility that we were going to be able to listen in in an effort to, you know, increase and enhance the experience. Uh, And we were all very, very excited. We just didn't know when this was going to come about. We've now seen it come about multiple times, both on ESPN and uh, and on Fox. And it is wonderful. It is, uh, it is what we it was at least what I have wanted to see and to hear for a long time. Um, it, it has given us a peek into uh, a world that we rarely get to see, okay? And we've heard players and, and, and coaches and even referees scream and yell on the field. But this intimate and personal interaction that ultimately is what we react off of uh, to be to be to get that peek behind the curtain was was incredible. I think it humanizes the referees at a moment, maybe more so than any moment in history when they need to be humanized. Uh, I think it gives us, as I said, not just that peak, but that understanding of the humans that are trying to decide what <laughs> what the call should be and the way that their minds are working. The 
app, uh, you know, the application of the laws, uh, which a lot of times people don't think about when they're arguing and screaming and yelling at things, uh, and the interaction and the communication and the discussion that goes into some of these subjective calls. Now, what we have seen so far are very kind of clear-cut offside uh, type of calls. And so it's, it's, it's harder to argue with those. Uh, we saw a, uh, um, a handling, uh, a handball decision that was more subjective, but it was just kind of there and everybody knew it. What will really be interesting to see is when we have that access and it's deciding a very contentious and, um, you know, a, a play that, that can go either way. And when it's ultimately down to these humans saying, I believe that this did violate the law, or I believe that this didn't violate the law. And even though we get that explanation, uh, we still disagree. And to see how this whole interaction then plays, uh, because everyone says, oh, this is so much better. And it is. I think, it, I think it, it puts the referees in a better light. I think it puts the game in a better light. And I think you're more apt to give them the benefit of the doubt when you see this this action play out until there is something that you vehemently disagree with and fundamentally disagree with, even though you've just seen it. Yes, you will have a better perspective, but what that perspective will, will do is just, I guess, confirm your suspicions that these guys are morons, okay? <laughs> uh, now you just have a whole lot more uh, information uh, and uh, you know, ammunition to point to when you, call, when you call them morons for the decision that they made. But all in all, wonderful. I love it. I hope that it continues. Uh, there, and look, not everybody's comfortable behind a microphone. And this is, this is a performance, okay? They know that they are on camera now and they know what they are saying is now being broadcast out. And therefore, there will be a performance element to both the center referee going to the, uh, to, to the, to the screen and talking to the, uh, the VAR and the VAR there in what he or she says down to the uh, center referee. So it's fascinating to watch, but I do hope that it continues. I think it will. This is, an, this is another one of those things that we talk about that are getting thrown against the wall that I think are getting such positive reviews that are going to be something that stick uh, going forward. Did you like it? I did. And I, I did get a kick out of the... Um referee before the Orlando City LAFC shootout when he's going over the uh, having to keep your foot on the line rule. He says, look, I don't like the rule either, but I got to enforce it. <laughs> I thought that was great. It was, yeah, it was very, and you know, once again, that's, that's the humanization process of these referees. They're, they're not robots yet, uh, but they are not, they are human beings right now. And seeing how they interact and how they talk and the language that they use, all of that is, that for me is, is, is good stuff. That for me is fascinating. The screaming and yelling on the field doesn't really do a whole lot for me. But that to me, uh, I, think, I think that enhances the viewing experience for all of us at home that are watching on television. And I do hope that that, uh, that, that, continues, uh, that continues on. Some, you know, something like that. All right, so I think that that's uh, something that definitely should continue. And I think both of us are in favor of that uh, going forward. All right, let's finish, uh, let's finish that up here and, uh, and move on. When we come back, uh, we'll do our, our world wrap-up. We'll be talking about uh, some FA Cup news, Champions League, all sorts of stuff that's going on uh, right around the corner here. All right, don't go anywhere uh, and moving on. All right, welcome back. Uh, our world wrap-up 
here uh, is our next segment here. We're going to talk about uh, a lot of different things. But first, we're going to start it off with the FA Cup fallout. Mossy, did you watch this incredible, incredible game, the FA Cup? Historic game. I did. So Arsenal, uh, 2-1 winners over Chelsea at Wembley. It is their record 14th FA Cup crown. The Chelsea goal was scored by Christian Pulisic. Uh, Pulisic became just the third American to play in an FA Cup final, joining John Harkes, who featured in 1993 for Sheffield Wednesday against Arsenal, and then Tim Howard, who featured in two different finals, uh, one for United in 2004 and then one for Everton in 2009. Pulisic became the youngest player to score in an FA Cup final since Cristiano Ronaldo for Manchester United against Millwall in 2004. But then he exits in the second half with a hamstring injury, which I feel like we have this conversation every week. Uh, his performances are great, but then this injury thing is still sort of hovering over him. So what was your reaction to all of that going on? It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. Uh, it was wonderful to see Christian Pulisic, not just play, but, but again, star for this team. Uh, dynamic every single time he touched the ball. Um, scaring the bejesus out of everybody when he gets on the ball, taking players on one-on-one. His first thought is to go forward. His first thought is to engage, just confidence oozing. And then what we have unfortunately come to expect, which is not just the injury, but you know the injury without actually being hit, You know the muscular thing. I mean, you knew it right away when you saw it in real time. And then certainly when you saw the replay uh, and him cry and wince uh, at, at whatever snapping uh, had happened there. And it's just, it's, it's sad. It's, it's not unexpected, but it's, but it's sad nonetheless. You know, so now we're, we're back to the, the same conversation in that here is a player that potentially could go on to be the best male American player ever to play the game. And one of the great players in the world who just happens to be American. And yet, you know, he can't find a way to stay healthy. And we've seen plenty of talent that, that hasn't been able to do something like that. Look, hopefully this is just a blip. And, you know, I guess the, it's not the good part because he's going to miss the potential to play, but you know, the next season will be around the corner. He'll have hopefully a little bit of time to rest both his body and his mind and come back, uh, come back, come back stronger. But, you know, while, while everyone in that moment, you know, our, our, our hearts dropped, there also was an element of, well, here we go again. And that's, that's 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 sad like i said and that's uh that's unfortunate but at least he gave us an incredible moment and moments during that game but the news will be that once again he can't sustain it from a physical perspective so i don't know what do you think Mossy? yeah no very very disappointing to see him come off uh you know you just worry about a player whose game is is built so much on explosiveness and pace and and you just hope that these injuries don't take a toll on that um because again, it's the only issue right now. His performances are just magnificent. Uh, that was a wonderful goal he scored. So now I have two other uh, big picture thoughts on this game. Okay. Uh, one involving each team. Uh, I'll start with the Chelsea one. And and by the way, in a world in which Alex Dowd still participated in these conversations, I wouldn't mind getting his take on this, but uh, he, he seems uh, 
reluctant to join in these days. Um, Frank Lampard has become one of the most polarizing figures uh, in English football because uh, we talked last week about how proud in Italy they are of the success of Italian managers. The last 10 seasons, Serie A has been won by an Italian manager, mm-hmm. either Allegri, Conti, or Sari. Also, Italian managers have gone to England and had great success. Ancelotti, Mancini, uh, Ranieri, Conti, all winning Premier League titles fairly recently. In England, it's the opposite story. An English manager hasn't won the FA Cup since Harry Redknapp in, in 2008. And an English manager hasn't won the league since Howard Wilkinson in 1992 with Leeds United. An English manager has actually never won the Premier League title. And so here you have Lampard in charge of Chelsea. There's a little bit of a great white hope sort of thing around them where they really want him to succeed because it'd be nice to have an English manager doing well at one of the top clubs. And he's had an interesting first season here that you could sort of look at it. There is a line of thought that, look, he lost Eden Hazard. They were under a transfer ban. He wasn't able to sign anybody. So to finish in the top four, get to an FA Cup final, get to the knockout stages of the Champions League, there are people who think he's done really well and should even be like a candidate for manager of the year. And then there are others that say, wait a minute, they didn't win anything. They didn't play particularly great football. And so why are we celebrating this so much? The jury is still way out on him on whether he's worthy of being a manager of a club like Chelsea. Uh, Which side do you you, you come down on on that? Well, (laughs) I, I get the he didn't win anything. And you only need to look at across the way to Arteta and how important that was in kind of establishing him. Uh, you know, we know where we know that he has the potential to be incredibly successful. We know that he is talented, but you know, to, once again, to be able to point to that trophy, we talked earlier about, uh, you know, uh, with, uh, with MLS and the MLS teams, to be able to point to that trophy. It, what it does is it doesn't vanquish, but it completely distorts sometimes the reality behind what, what it took to get to that trophy or what happened to get to that trophy. Ultimately, that's all that people care about is holding up that trophy and having that, and having that money shot. And so when it comes to, and you know, I, I was listening to a lot of the, uh, you know, our, our, our colleagues over uh, across the pond there and the way that they talked about how a young coach needs that to to solidify and enhance and enhance their image needs a trophy regardless of what it is to to enhance their their image and it it buys them a lot of clout uh and it buys them a lot of leash uh going forward but when i look at what frank lampard has at his disposal uh right now and let's be honest what's coming with timo Werner, potentially kai havertz this is this is going to be and I know, I'm, I'm sure Alex is smiling at this. This is, uh, this is going to be a very, very good team. And if you're Chelsea right now, you have to decide, can this team be great by being coached by uh, Frank Lampard? I think the jury's still out, but the 99.9% of the, uh, the managers out there would kill or die to be given the tools that Frank Lampard has and is going to have going forward at, uh, at his disposal. And at some point, if that doesn't translate into a recognized success and the ability to hold up a trophy, I, I think people are going to lose patience very, very quickly. Uh, Alex Dowd, any thoughts on this or uh, should I move come on? Come on, Alex, just are you come still, out of your uh, giving us a silent treatment as you have. Are you, are you, the question is, is, should Chelsea continue with Frank Lampard or uh, not. He just, he just texted us, move on. Ha-ha. Oh, he doesn't want, he doesn't want to be this. All right, fine. Exactly. All right, so I'll move on to my second point, which okay. is uh, about another ex Dortmund player that uh, scored in this final Pierre Emerick Aubameyang. Uh, I've spoken on this podcast about the fact that we've had some great center forwards 
in the last decade or so who have been somewhat overshadowed by the exploits of Messi and Ronaldo. I'm talking about guys like Benzema and Suarez and Lewandowski and Aguero and Cavani. Aubameyang is probably not quite on that level. He's like a notch below those guys. But boy, I've been thinking a lot about his career the last couple of days, and maybe we don't give him enough credit. He, he rose to prominence. He was actually signed by AC Milan as a teenager, but never got a look there and kept getting loaned out. He eventually rose to prominence with Saint-Étienne, scored 19 league on goals in his last season there, parlayed that into a move to Dortmund in the summer of 2013. Dortmund still had Lewandowski, so he spent a season playing out wide. Uh, Dortmund that season, by the way, the 2013-14 campaign, if you can believe this, they had a front three of Lewandowski, Aubameyang, and Marco Royce, and were coached by Jurgen Klopp and still finished 19 points behind Bayern of Pep's first season. So uh, go figure. But then Lewandowski left, uh, at the end of that season, Aubameyang uh, moved into the center forward role and became absolutely prolific for the next three and a half years, just about match Lewandowski goal for goal. They were always battling for the golden boot every year. There was one season I remember we covered where Aubameyang finished with 31 goals, Lewandowski 30. They had this epic golden boot race. Uh, so after putting up incredible numbers at Dortmund in January of 2018, he finally makes the move to Arsenal in the Premier League. I thought Arsenal had sort of missed a little bit of the window on him. Now he's in his late 20s and, you know, you, you might be past the point where you should be making that sort of move. But boy, he's been absolutely prolific for them. 70 goals in 109 games in all competitions. Just to give you some context, uh, that's more goals than Mohamed Salah has scored for Liverpool over that same span. Aubameyang, fastest Arsenal player to reach 50 Premier League goals. goals. He did it faster than Thierry Henry. Um, In this FA Cup run, he scores two goals in the semis against Man City, two goals in the final against Chelsea. So he's been just an incredible signing. And now his contract is up next year. They're worried about him potentially leaving. He's 31 years old. He's been linked to the likes of Barcelona. And so Arteta is trying to convince him to stay, to sign a new deal there, to commit his future to Arsenal. So we'll see what happens with him. But still, I mean, I mean, where do you rate Aubameyang? Do you think he's a player that, that maybe we haven't given as much credit to as we should for the career that he's had? Aubameyang is the Minnesota United, okay, of, <laughs> uh, of players, okay? <laughs> no, I mean, look, everybody recognizes he's good, but I think he suffers because he plays for Arsenal. Let's be honest. And, and, and you know, this gets into... I don't know. Did you, uh, if you watched the game and you heard the uh, the English language commentary, uh, at one point in the game, they actually had the conversation, would you rather win the FA Cup or finish top four? And uh, sheepishly, both of the, uh, the commentators said, yeah, at this point, it's finishing the top four. So, you know, what is Europa? Obviously, it's it's playing in Europe, but it is it's not Champions League. Uh, or I guess what isn't the FA Cup anymore is 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 more apt. But when it comes to Aubameyang, I mean, I think any team in the world would love to would love to have him. I think because of what Arsenal is, and who knows, maybe it's heading in a, in a good direction. It's I, it remains to be seen. But because of what Arsenal is, if I was him, I'd certainly be looking at other opportunities. And you know, he'll command. He'll come, the guy scores goals, as you said. And he has done it consistently. And on in an arsenal that has been so, at times, poor and frustrating, he has been a golden and shining light out there, which means that he probably shouldn't stay, because <laughs> that's not that's not what Arsenal is or or are going for. Do you think it's more important to? Uh, would you rather win uh, FA Cup or top four? 
I would rather top four uh, because I think being in the Champions League is, is you know, from a, from a status standpoint, is the single biggest thing in European football now. But I am on record. I said this last week. I'll say it again this week. It's a good thing that Arsenal are in the Europa League next season, which they earned that birth by virtue of winning the FA Cup because I like having that other path to the Champions League. Uh, top four could be absolutely brutal next season, especially with Chelsea and United in the ascendancy and Liverpool and City being as good as they are. And so Arsenal, to put all your eggs in that basket, I think would be very dangerous. I like having that other option that if they win the Europa League, they would get themselves into the Champions League. So so this is a good thing all the way around. Arteta gets his first trophy. It's, it's very nice to win an FA Cup. And it gets them in Europe next season. They were in danger of missing out of European football for the first time since the 95-96 season, but they avoided that by winning this game. All right, enough about the uh, little engine that could that is Arsenal. Uh, what, what else do we got here, Masi? Uh, well, let's uh, transition to the uh, UEFA Champions League. Which, yes, uh, back, baby. It's back this week. So, uh, we, yeah, we've been talking about this. The way this is going to work is there's still four uh, round of 16 second legs to be played, and those will occur at the home stadiums of the teams that were supposed to host them. So there's two on Friday, two on Saturday. On Friday, we have Juventus looking to overturn a 1-0 uh, first leg deficit against Lyon. Uh, Juventus sweating on the fitness of Paulo Dybala. Lyon have Memphis Depay back, who uh, scored five goals in the group stage, had a, a, a bad injury, would have missed uh, the rest of the season if it had been a normal season. But this stoppage actually gave him enough time to get, get himself healthy again. Lyon have played one competitive match since March. It was the French League Cup final, which they just lost to PSG on penalties after a nil-nil draw. So that's a big concern for them, the lack of, of fitness and rhythm. Uh, while Juventus, you know, played out Serie A until this past uh, weekend. So um, so Juventus looking to turn around a 1-0 deficit there. They've been a little bit unreliable on their side of the season, but I still, if I had to put my money on it, would say Juventus get a result, Ronaldo and company move on. You Agreed. Yep. That same day, this is an interesting one, Manchester City hosts Real Madrid. Oof. City won the first leg 2-1 at the Bernabeu, the very good performance. And as soon as that first leg ended, I think we all felt like, City are the better team. They're going home with an advantage. They, 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 they have a foot and a half in the quarterfinals here. They should move on. And uh, I, I feel like the, 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 the feeling around this, this second leg has changed uh, all these months later. Uh, City have been just flaky enough in this restart. And Real Madrid were lights out and, and, and ripped off 10 straight victories in La Liga uh, en route to winning the title. Um, so now there's like a growing sense that Real Madrid can do this, that they can go to the Etihad and get a result. Uh, 2-0, they go through. 2-1 would take it to extra time. Uh, Aguero is out. It'll be Gabriel Jesus probably starting up top for uh, City unless Pep decides for a lineup without a center forward. Maybe Raheem Sterling is kind of a false nine. Uh, and then for Real Madrid, Sergio Ramos is suspended, which is a big miss. Uh, Edith Militon will start in the center of the fence. And then Zidane is still trying to figure out that front three. The Spanish media thinks it'll probably be Hazard, Benzema, and then one of either Isco, Valverde, or Asensio, which means it'll probably be Rodrigo because they have no idea what's it on. Every, every time they think he's zigging, he zags, so who the heck knows. But uh, So, I mean, do you think Real Madrid, Zidane and company can go there and get a result and knock out Pep uh, and Manchester City? No, I think Manchester City uh, finds a way through. What then about you? We go to, what about uh, you? Well, hold on. What about you? Uh, yeah, I'd, I'd still lean Manchester City. Um, okay. Then we go to Saturday. Uh, we've got Bayern, Chelsea, Bayern uh, are home. They won 3-0 at Stamford Bridge. Chelsea now with all sorts of injury problems. Pulisic is out for this game. So, I mean, this to me is, is academic, uh, you know, barring a catastrophe, Bayern are going to move on. The big point of interest here is this will be Bayern's first competitive match since the German Cup final on July 4th. They really want to use this game to shake off the rust 
uh, in preparation for going to Lisbon to try to win this competition. And so it'll be interesting to see just how they look. Uh, I think they'll certainly advance, but if, if they give a really kind of rusty, lethargic performance, then we'll all think, boy, the layoff really hurt. And I don't know about their chances of winning this whole thing anymore. But if they don't miss a beat and, and play the way they were playing, you know, way back in, in when the Bundesliga was still going on, then, you know, we'll all feel good about them again. Yeah, but I don't necessarily, if they don't look, like world beaters against Chelsea. I don't necessarily think that that is a bad sign. I mean, because being up three, nothing already. Okay. They can use this as that preseason game to get back in. And anytime you've seen a preseason game, sometimes your, your goals are different than the actual win or the amount of goals that, that you, that you score. So I, I, if, if they don't look, like I said, like world beaters against Chelsea, I wouldn't, I still think obviously they're going to I think that they're they're going to go through uh, without a problem and I think that they will use this game to ramp up to the Portugal bubble are we calling this anything that over in Portugal have they decided on a, on a name or a sponsor with uh, UCL is back now. UCL. <laughs> uh, <laughs> hashtag UCL is back baby um, all right last one is uh, Barcelona Napoli uh, this was 1-1 in Italy so now we go back to Camp Nou uh, Barcelona with uh, issues in the midfield. Busquets and Vidal are both suspended, and Artur has gone AWOL. Uh, he is no longer around. He's hanging out with Jonas Cespedes. Um, and so there's talk of Kike Setien unveiling a 3-5-2 formation with Sergio Roberto and Jordi Alba as the wingbacks. You'd have Rakitic, uh, Puig, and, and De Jong as the three in the midfield, and then just Messi and Suarez up top. No Griezmann in that 11. Uh, who the heck knows? The, the, the Barcelona media has been speculating on a lot of different lineups the last couple of days. Uh, Napoli's sweating on Insigne. Uh, he's an injury doubt. Uh, boy, this I have no feel for this game. Barcelona have been so all over the place that Napoli, I think, would absolutely go there and beat him. But, I mean, if I was a betting man, Barca are home, it's Messi. Uh, I guess I'd pick them, but it's not. Okay, what but I'm taking Napoli. I'm taking Napoli. Yeah, it wouldn't surprise me at all. I'm taking Napoli. Yeah. Uh, and uh, very quickly, just not to shortchange this competition, the Europa League also comes back this week. Uh, so uh, they have to conclude their round of 16 as well. There's uh, eight matches between Wednesday and Thursday. And then uh, their bubble will be in Germany in, in four different cities in the Rhine region, Cologne, Dusseldorf, Gelsenkirchen, and Duisburg. It all culminates with the final at the Rhine Energy Stadium in Cologne, uh, August 21st. So uh, keep an eye on that. Uh, all of this, mind you, will be televised on CBS. Uh, do you want to get into that uh, right now? <laughs> sure. I mean, uh, our, our friends over at CBS uh, are, are coming in, I guess, a, a year early uh, after uh, getting the rights from uh, our friends over at Turner. And uh, this... This little bubble will be the first time that we see them do anything. They came out, uh, what was it, last week with the announcement of what their, their roster and their talent is going to be. You know, for those of us over here, it is uh, not predominantly, it is all uh, international foreign talent. Uh, it is all, uh, there, there's no real domestic type of, uh, of talent that you have seen. Other uh, a friend, Kate Abdo, who obviously lives here, but you know, let's be honest. It is, it, it is with, I, I think catering to and recognizing a, uh, a production approach that uh, they feel is going to resonate the most. And most of that <laughs> or all of that means that there will be no accents like you're hearing right now on this podcast. Now I've, I've tried to stay, um, 
true and not be hypocritical or sanctimonious when, when talking about things when it comes to soccer. And in the same way that I say that no MLS team should have to field domestic players, and if they want to have all international players, they should be allowed to do so. That's my same approach to this. If CBS feels that this is the appropriate approach for their product, for their customer, and that's going to get the most most views and make them as relevant as possible, then damn right you should go with that if that's what you feel is, is going to happen. Having said that, I will put our domestic talent up against their talent in, you know, kind of like a... Uh, <laughs> a gangs of <laughs> gangs of TV soccer talent uh, any day of the week, any day of the week. Uh, but I wish them luck. Uh, I'll be you know interested to see what it looks like. A lot of it is being streamed, so people are going to scream and yell about the streaming. And by the way, just when it comes to the the uh, strategy of of streaming, uh, we all know that there is traditional television, and we all love and know it. But we also know that a huge part of the business is your digital platform and your streaming platform out there. And so the strategy of getting to try or trying to change behavior of your viewers and to have them migrate over is completely legitimate, fair, and, and smart. And people are gonna scream and yell, and some people aren't gonna spend the money to do that, but that's what the business is, and that's what's happening in our business. And uh, does it mean that less people are going to spend that money and therefore make that migration? Yes, but they only, want a per they only expect a portion of people to do it. And people don't like to be forced, but eventually you got to nudge people if that's where you think your business is. And that's why this is being done. But I was, you know, I, I look, they have a great group of people that are working uh, when it comes to who is going to present it and the talent, you know, something that we always talk about because of the business and the industry that we are, that we are in, that there is, you know, not a single quote unquote domestic type of talent um, and American voice, if you will. Okay, that's, you know, that's certainly one, that's certainly one way to go. And I don't want, you know, once again, I don't want tokens. I don't want people being given it just because they are, you know, to have an American voice. I want it because they're talented. And there's a lot of talent out there when it comes to American soccer voices out there that could have been used. But, you know, this is, this is a competition and this is what they, uh, they have gone with. I'm going to watch. I'm excited to see what it looks like, both on the field and the production of it, because this is the first time that we are going to see what uh, the folks over there at CBS, uh, CBS are doing. And they've taken a, a very interesting and different type of approach to, to what it is, obviously a much more traditional, uh, and the ear wants what the ear wants. So we'll see if it, uh, it, if it resonates out there. Moss, you got anything on this? Yeah, I mean, look, it's an interesting, it's an age-old debate. Um, if you're uh, trying to get uh, really accomplished players with big-time credentials at that level, uh, then invariably that is going to lead you down the foreign path um, because th the reality is th there isn't uh, an American Ruud Hullet, an American Peter Schmeichel in terms of Champions League credentials. But the other side of it is, is it odd to turn on a sporting event on American television and not hear a single American voice, hear only foreign analysts with accents? Does that perpetuate the notion that this is a foreign sport? So it's something that networks have grappled with. Um, Fox, as we know, is unabashedly on the American side. They think that part of the evolution of the sport in this country is also developing American voices. You know, NBC get held up as an example of doing it the quote unquote authentic way, but even they have Kyle Martino. So uh, CBS are even outflanking them in that regard because they don't have a single one. Uh, so it's interesting. There's a larger conversation here that we can have someday about the United States sort of juggling being this melting pot 
and, and having all this diversity and having a lot of the soccer fandom driven by immigrants. But at the same time, you want to take what's good about that, but you do want to forge a, a, a soccer identity of your own as a nation, you know, and it's, th this is the only country, I'll just end it with this. This is the only country where it's controversial to have somebody from that country calling a game. Uh, I mean, it's like the notion, <laughs> I'm trying to picture somebody being in England and complaining that you have an English announcer calling a match from any league on television. It's like, well, you're in England, it's English television. Who else would be doing it? You know, somebody in Brazil complaining that there's a Brazilian calling a European match. Well, no, I mean, you're in Brazilian, you're in Brazil. Like <laughs> who else would be calling it? Uh, and yet, so somehow in this country, this has become a big, big hot button topic. But like I said, I don't want to, there, it's a longer conversation than we can have someday, but. Uh, it is, it uh, is. But, you know, it plays into all, you know, what we talk about all the time, our insecurities and our inferiority complex when it comes to, to who we are. And, and you know, I, I get it. And as I said, the, the traditional and what is perceived as authentic and genuine type of broadcast is kind of ingrained. But it changes, it changes over time. And CBS is doing a, as I said, a very traditional type of approach to it. And I'll leave you with this. Last I checked, Champions League is playing the exact same game that is played all over the world. There are no different rules. <laughs> there are no, no different ways of actually playing the game. So somebody who has played in Champions League, okay, may or may not have a better grasp of what is happening on the field, okay? Uh, in the same way that somebody that has never played in Champions League may or may not have a, a better grasp. It's, it's the same game and your ability to talk about it in an interesting and entertaining way is ultimately what I want to see, okay? And others have to make uh, uh, their, you know, their own decisions. And that's why I say, I'm not gonna scream and yell about it. Uh, I wouldn't do it. If, if it was my choice, but I recognize and I respect that people in this business, and this is a business, have to make tactical and strategic type of decisions to give themselves the best chance of success. And if CBS feels that this is the best chance of success and success is having people watch, then by all means, go with it. All right, Masi, anything else? That's it. All right, we're going to take another quick break here. And when we come back, we'll be uh, doing our Ask Alexi segment. So don't go away. Uh, moving on. Hello, people. Alexi here to remind you how you can help make sure kids across the country are able to access sports and play even during the current health crisis. Fox Sports is teaming up with Good Sports on their Restore Play initiative to bring sports and play back to kids in need through donations of brand new sports equipment. And your donations make it possible for kids to stay active and engaged in sports, no matter how COVID-19 is affecting their communities. Just go to goodsports.org to donate. Again, that's goodsports.org to donate and learn how you can help keep kids in the game. And now, back to the show. All right, we're back with the Ask Alexi segment, that segment when you uh, use that hashtag Ask Alexi or Ask Mossy and you send us some questions, comments, concerns out there on the social media platforms that we have. Uh, and we pick a few of them each every week as we uh, did this week. And uh, we find out what the people want to hear uh, about. Mossy, what do the people uh, have questions about this week? Uh, first up, at Pierre Pont, do you think Jimenez will play for uh, Manchester United after that season with Wolves? You have a player playing on a average team. Should we say average, Mossy? Is that fair or is that unfair? Wolves? Wolves, yeah. I think they've been better than average. Well, they have been better than average, but they are an average team, okay? 
we don't associate them with being elite, do we? No. Okay. So there you have a player, not just playing, but starting and scoring goals. The most difficult thing in our game is to put the ball in the back of the net. So obviously people are going to come calling. And because it is the team that we said, an, an average team, it's going to be in the shop window. And they are part of their business model is to look to sell teams to the super clubs and to the elites. So yes, I think that that certainly is something that, uh, that could happen. He's proven that he can score goals. He's proven that he can do it consistently. From a physical perspective, he's proven that he can deal with the league that is the EPL and whatever challenges you may or may not uh, attribute to that, uh, to that league. And as I said, the most important thing is that he puts the ball in the back of the net. So I think there will be suitors and big time suitors when it comes to him. You agree, Mossy, or disagree? Well, the interesting thing, he's been linked with Juventus, Liverpool, and Manchester United. And I'm trying to figure out, Raul Jimenez might be one of those guys that floats in this weird in-between where he's overqualified to be a backup, but a tad underqualified to be the week-in, week-out starting center forward for a quote-unquote super club. Um, when, when I initially heard that, that Juventus, uh, United, and Liverpool were interested in him, I thought initially it would be as a backup. Uh, Liverpool were trying to upgrade that Origi spot. United were trying to upgrade that Igalo spot. You know, Juventus viewing him perhaps as a backup to Cristiano Ronaldo, who's increasingly played as more of a center forward. And then reading the analysis of it, a lot of people are treating it as if he would be a starter at these clubs. Uh, Gary Neville talking about how he would fit into United. Oh, I don't want him to play with a, a big target striker. I'd rather have somebody like Rashford or Martial more mobile. Uh, Duncan Castles was talking about, oh, what that what that front three would look like with Ronaldo, Dybala, and, and Raul Jimenez. And I'm thinking, boy, that I don't know if that's what Juventus were thinking there. I think they're just, he'd be a good player to have in the squad, a useful player. So I don't know, maybe I'm misjudging Raul Jimenez's status at this point and how these clubs view him, but um, so, I mean, we'll see. I mean, what I hear is that you hate Raul Jimenez. Okay. Um, and that you don't think he's a talent, but, but more importantly, uh, if, if the continuation of five substitutes, uh, we know what's happening for the next year. If that continues on as part of the game, then the, the acquisition of talent specifically as starters becomes less if, for example, because you know, I look at Liverpool and it, it doesn't quite make sense with the way that they play. And yet maybe Klopp is, is someone that says, you know what, we need, to, we need to evolve and we need to progress and we need to take the best parts of what we are, but maybe augment that with something different. And if in the middle of the game, because he has more substitutes uh, at his disposal, he's able to fundamentally change the system that they play and therefore confuse a team or add something to the game and you know maybe Jimenez is part of something something like that that would make that would make more sense because you're right that the way that he plays and the player that he is kind of dictates how you are going to play and it's and it's it's kind of straightforward in terms of the way in the way that he plays and he does it very very well but you want him to kind of go to a place where that is going to be incorporated. And what I'm saying is in the modern day now with these, with these substitutions, what your philosophy is at the beginning of the game may be very different than what it is at the end of the game. And you've got to have players and you will now have the ability to have players to change even within a game. Yeah, and just to put some numbers on it, uh, Raul Jimenez, 17 Premier League goals a season, 26 in all competitions. And he can still add to that total because Wolves are in the Europa League. 
He's a 29-year-old Mexican international, so uh, we'll see where he ends up. Uh, listen, we're going to uh, we're going to talk transfers a lot in the next couple of weeks. Uh, but I, I, just to mention a few things here that caught my attention, uh, the United, uh, staying with Manchester United, the Sancho thing is getting really interesting because, um, clearly, uh, Dortmund are still holding to their evaluation of him, which is they want something in the neighborhood of 120 million euros, which there's no way United could pay that in one lump sum right now, given the, 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 this circumstances during this pandemic, but United are trying to work out some sort of deal where they pay that in installments over the next couple of years. And they think Dortmund might be willing to go for that, where they pay maybe only 60 million euros this summer. And then, you know, more money later on to eventually get to the figure that Dortmund want. Uh, so we'll see if it happens. Sancho, it seems like very much wants this move. Um, the, the other one you mentioned, Chelsea, Kai Havertz, uh, Chelsea, not satisfied with Ziyech and Werner. They also are trying to get Kai Havertz. We'll see if they can get that over the line. It's, it's, it's quite the, uh, the Premier League really feasting on the Bundesliga here because you've got Werner already at Chelsea, potentially Kai Havertz, Sancho possibly going to Manchester United, Thiago, who's become very interesting here. Uh, we've talked about how Jurgen Klopp has to sort of juggle, if it ain't broke, don't fix it, but also... Uh, avoiding complacency and trying to freshen up the squad. He passed on Werner. It seems like he really wants Thiago, and he thinks that Thiago would add a different element to that midfield. Uh, but they now have some competition from PSG who are interested in Thiago too. Might be able to hijack that deal. Um, and then, you know, obviously you had uh, one the other way of Leroy Sané leaving the Premier League, leaving Manchester City to go to Bayern. But so, you know, we talk about it not not being as crazy of a summer because of the pandemic. But I don't know. I mean, there is a lot of stuff happening or potentially happening. Uh, Manchester City, I thought this was kind of funny. Uh, they get that ruling in their favor and it's like OJ golfing the next day. They're, they're right back at it, uh, spending loads of money. They've uh, signed uh, two players, Nathan Ake uh, from Bournemouth and uh, Ferran Torres, young Spanish winger from Valencia. So uh, the city are going to be city. Now, of course, they're spending some of that Sané money, to be fair. So the net spend on all that isn't that much. But uh, still, uh, it seems like these clubs are still going to be active here. We're going to have a lot to talk about. I hope so. I hope so. That would uh, that would be great. It makes our, our job that much easier and, and more fun. All right, what else, Mossy? At Anthony Maxo, mm -hmm. uh, I wish we played more international matches, Alexi. Our best run in 2002, we played 15 internationals. Oh, he's done some research too. So in 2002, getting to the quarterfinals of the World Cup and a handball away from potentially going on, uh, we played 15 international games is what he's saying. I think that's what he's saying. Look, uh, it, every coach for a national team laments the fact that they don't have enough time with their players. And it's true. It's a very different type of coaching and managing. And I would love to have more too, but, you know, especially now where we have so much of our team that plays in Europe, the, the travel is a factor. Um, well, now I guess the world that we live in is a factor. And so it's only going to get if, uh, to Anthony Maxwell worse, I guess it would be in that there's going to be less. And we talked last week about how, what 2021 is going to look like for Greg Berhalter and company. And, you know, while they'll have a couple of games, you know, the next time that we will see them is March and then into, for the most part, into uh, next summer, possibly. And that's just best case scenario. We don't even know if that's actually going to uh, going to happen. So, yes, you're absolutely right that we all wish they could play more international games, but it's more wear and tear. There's only so many dates that are able to be used when it comes to FIFA and for all for all countries and for all national teams. And that is... That's where the skill is. That's, that's how you separate yourself as a good international manager 
relative to a bad one, is your ability in a very short period of time to get everybody up to speed. Now, what's happening is, and when you talk to Greg Berhalter, what's happening is being a an international player back in my day was very compartmentalized. You were either with the national team or you're with your club and never the two shall meet or mix. And that's very, very different nowadays in that with, with video and with communication, uh, the amount of interaction that you have with the staff of a national team is, has been ratcheted up. And so you are intaking not just your day-to-day -day club's uh, responsibilities, but also your international responsibilities, even if you're not on an international break and with that team. That's not necessarily overwhelming, but it's, hey, here's some things to think about with, for the next camp that's coming up. Or here's some things that happened in that last game that you need to be working on and thinking about as you go about your daily club existence. And sometimes those don't always mesh, but I think you're doing a disservice to your players and ultimately, I guess, to your country if you're a national team coach and you are not in contact on, on a consistent basis and feeding those players things to see. Not, to, not at the detriment to their, their club responsibilities and their day-to-day -day responsibilities. But yes, uh, Antonio Maxo, it would be great to have more internationals, but I only think it's going to be less going forward given our, our current circumstances and current, and even in normal times, the realities of the limited dates that uh, national teams have. What else, Masi? Uh, one on this, at E. Monzone, which makes me think of Brother Monzone, a character on the wire. Uh, e. Monzone 14, uh, do they need to keep water breaks in the regular season? Okay, so we talked about stuff to, that we've thrown on the wall that uh, may or may not stick uh, beyond. We, we, we know that the, uh, the five substitutes is continuing on for a year. You know, the water breaks are something that has really piqued my interest. Um, I am in favor, and I would be a proponent of continuing to have water breaks. That ultimately, while they may be called water breaks, and in, uh, in England they call them drinks breaks, which is actually kind of neat. I, I picture them having a nice gin and tonic on the sideline, uh, but that's, that's unfortunately not happening. I, I would like to see them continue on. You can call them whatever you want. Ultimately, what these end up being are timeouts. Mossy, last week or a couple weeks ago, you talked about your father and how he is a huge, huge uh, fan of these, whatever you want to call them, breaks, because he gets an opportunity to actually go to the bathroom uh, or stand up and stretch his, stretch his legs. And I love that. First off, I love that honesty. Okay. And I love that your, your father, who is a tried and true traditionalist uh, in the way that, you know, he's been around the game, he's seen everything. I love the fact that he can, that he can open his mind to something like this and a change like this, even if it's just for his personal uh, comfort and, and how it affects him personally, but he can see the game that he loves still having a, a situation where, the game has what amounts to a timeout. Let's be honest. In a game that, I guess, prides itself or separates itself from not having timeouts, this would be an actual timeout. I like it because I think it provides a moment of, a new moment of drama and the opportunity to change the narrative in terms of either substitutions that are made or more importantly, changes that are made uh, in that moment when a coach can have an effect. We talk about coaches having very little effect when the game actually kicks off. And some, for some people, that's what makes it beautiful. But what we have seen is coaches are using these water breaks to actually coach. And so their value in the middle of a game increases. 
And we've seen teams that have looked very different coming out of the water break than before the water break. And I like that. I like that the, the narrative changes. I like that the theater and the drama can take us in different directions because of that break. And there's some people that don't. So I, I think, as I said, it has fundamentally changed the way that the game is managed, slash coached, whatever you want to call it, um, and the impact that managers and, and coaches can have on a team. Because I said, it's, it's essentially a timeout, which is something new, which is something different. Uh, and I, I, I like it, and I hope that it remains. Uh, and so I would, I would still watch and would like to see the game, even in the dead of winter, have a water break, have a drinks break, have, let's be honest, a timeout. And the other part of it is, and I know I talk a lot about business uh, because it's part of what, it, what, you know, what makes our game thrive and continue. It is another commercial opportunity, let's be honest. And the potential uh, of generating more revenue, I think, is a good thing. I don't think it takes away from the game because people will come at me and say, well, why don't we have five breaks? Or why don't we have, you know, constantly break? And is it a slippery slope? Okay, yeah, it could possibly be. But we're already watching the game right now. And I don't think that it is detrimental to the viewing experience that, that, I've, that I have had. Maybe, it's, maybe to others, uh, they feel differently. But I would have no problem if the game continued to have these breaks, whatever we are going to call them going forward, regardless of the temperature outside. Masi, you? Yeah, I don't mind them. Um, I'm okay with it. Now, if uh, between the, the breaks or the five subs, if you had to pick your battles there and have one of those stay and one of those go, which are you more bullish on and wanting to see it stay? Well, I think the five subs is the thing that's going to stay. Uh, I I think the I don't think the water breaks are going to continue if and when we get back to whatever new normal it is. If I had to pick myself, if I if I only choose one of the two, oh, that's hard because I think I'd choose the break. I think I'd choose the break. You know, I, and look, I've argued for the five subs because of the ability for star power to get on the field, the ability to change the game. Uh, once again, change it. You know, they both change the face of the game in different ways. But what would be more beneficial to the, to the game? I, I think the water break, the drinks break, the timeout. <laughs> I'd be curious to know if managers are in favor of it because mm -hmm. you think, well, of course, they'd love that opportunity to address their team and make adjustments. But there's some that might be worried that it's yet another thing they could be questioned about. And, you know, why, why, why is your team struggling so much right after breaks while other teams are doing better? And, and maybe that speaks to other coaches being better than you and making in-game adjustments. And it might be one more thing that coaches are going to get criticized for that they might not like. No, it, it, it enables us to better judge them, okay? Because, you know, sometimes they'll just wash their hands. And I, and I get it because you have little effect. Your work is done up to the whistle. And then... It's up to the players on the field. They'll scream and yell from the sideline, but it doesn't register. Let's be honest, okay? Uh, or they may they may change to a back four. You know, hold up three fingers. We're going to a back three or something like that. Okay, but this is an actual point where you can fairly judge them for the changes that they make or the changes that they that they don't make. It actually creates a situation where there is more responsibility on the coach. And some coaches, like you said, would like that. And some people will say, you know, I, I'm, I'm good with washing my hands and then letting whatever happens out on the field uh, happen. I, I would be interested. And I think there were, I think that there will be some coaches that will be pressured to 
not be in favor of it because of the traditional way of looking at the game. Um, and, and I'll be interested to see when, when they are asked if, if coaches have found it, because it can be frustrating, I would think, for coaches on the sideline to not be able to impact and have an effect on the game when, when the whistle blows. And this is, this is your opportunity to actually do something in that moment. And we've seen that it, it, it does have an impact. All right, anything else, Mossy? That's it. All right, so we come to the end of yet another State of the Union pod. And at the end of each and every pod, you know that I give you my uh, one for the road. Uh, and this week, congratulations to me uh, and, and to others, but, but most importantly to me. Because, uh, Mossy, I don't know if you know, but I have become a owner of a club. Recent owner. Did you know this? I did not. My, uh, my team in Detroit, Detroit City FC, uh, recently uh, did a crowdfunding campaign uh, designed to, uh, in these interesting and difficult times, designed to raise capital, $1.2 million to be specific. And what they have decided to do and what they decided to do was sell off 10% of the team in a uh, crowdfunding type of way. And I, I looked at this and I said, hey, here's an opportunity for me to uh, get a piece of ownership in a team. So now I, along with many others, own a part of Detroit City FC. It makes me incredibly proud. Uh, my, my, home, uh, my home city in my home state, uh, what Detroit City FC has done in that city has been wonderful. And uh, I recognize that in these uh, difficult times, um, you know, you got to do what you have to do. And they did it in a creative way. And they've already raised a bunch of money so far. And, you know, this is not, this is not necessarily new. It's happened with, uh, with other teams. But I, I feel that it was money well spent for what the team brings to the city and what the team brings to that, uh, uh, that community. And more importantly, what it's going to continue to, uh, to bring. But, you know, as an owner now, uh, I'm going to have uh, a much greater opinion. And I'm not sure if I'm going to have much greater say, but uh, I'm going to have a much greater opinion as to the way that things are happening both, uh, both on and off the field. You know that while it's not an LAFC type of scenario with all the uh, star-studded, famous type of uh, ownership, uh, one of my fellow owners is a... Detroit original and a rock legend when it comes to uh, Iggy Pop. You ever heard of Iggy Pop? I have. Yep. So he's also an owner. He's actually been involved in uh, some of the uh, the promotion of this uh, this crowdfunding thing. So thank you to Detroit City FC for allowing me to be part of this this family and this ownership group. Uh, and I look forward to much success on and off the field. Please use my funds appropriately and prudently as you go forward and continue to spread the gospel of soccer uh, in Detroit and beyond. Uh, Mossy, anything before we head out? That is it. That is it. We will see you again and hear you, uh, you will hear from us again uh, next week, uh, as always, uh, on the State of the Union pod. It's an absolute pleasure and an honor and a privilege to be able to do this for you each and every week. And we thank you so much for 
downloading and reviewing and subscribing and rating and uh, telling your friends about all the different uh, ways to get this podcast on all the different platforms. We'll be back again next week. And until then, size the day.